Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today I'm interviewing somebody with my same name, Carlos Gonzalez Cadenas. He's the Chief Product Officer of Skyscanner, or rather was, now he's an expert in residency at SeedCamp. And he's got an amazing background. Not only did he study computer science in Spain and did some part-time work as a waiter and a DJ, as he was telling me earlier, but he went on to create several startups, uh, scaled them up, sold them, and one of those acquisitions, how he landed in Skyscanner. But I'll let him tell that story from the very beginning. Uh, thanks for joining us, Carlos. Thank you very much, Carlos. Thanks for inviting me. This is going to get weird. We better stop not referring exactly. to each other by first names. Exactly. So let's look at your, your background. I know that you mentioned that you had studied computer science, but what was what was the, the, the sort of life for you right after college there? Kind of what, what got you in this path of entrepreneurship? So, you know... I think from the very beginning, so since since I was a kid, you know, I figured out how things, you know, work from the perspective. And I think this is probably the main pattern I've been, you know, uh, having, you know, through my life, you know, and I've been applying that to multiple things, you know, initially, you know, building Legos and understanding how, you know, Lego blocks work and building things with Legos and then, you know, building, you know, technology and programs, you know, from the perspective and then moving to, to build, you know, companies and, and teams from the perspective. So for me, the pattern is, you know, building things and this is what, what I truly enjoy, you know, from the perspective, building building teams, building products, and and, and building companies from the perspective. So, so was NetFocus the first company that you went? So to it, it wasn't the first the first company, but I think so. so before NetFocus, uh, so it was basically having other jobs as as a engineer or a senior architect from the perspective. So I was more of on a on an individual contributor, you know, engineering job from the perspective. But NetFocus is your first entrepreneurial. So yeah, so that, that's kind of, you know, the year NetFocus, uh, what uh, what I did was, you know, to lead the the, the creation of uh, the digital security, you know, business within within NetFocus. And, you know, I was the, the deputy CEO, so I was the, the number two guy to the to the CEO. And I took the in charge of, you know, developing the, the, the security business, which, you know, basically what we're doing there, and it's not that, you know, very, very, you know, interesting or fun business compared to, you know, for example, things like Skyscanner and, and Fog, you know, which are, you know, kind of much more fun. This enterprise security. So basically what we're doing is, you know, we're building infrastructure for for actual, you know, for, for customers and, and companies to be able to transact, you know, online. So now in, in you know, some parts of Spain and some banks in Spain, you can actually, you know, pay taxes online and you can actually, you know, sign a contract without going to your uh, branch. And you can do that, you know, in a legally bending way from the perspective. And, we build that the company that you know, I was working, you know, with and focus, you know, we build that that technology from the perspective that is processing a substantial amount of transactions, and you know, build the, that division from zero. I was, you know, very lucky that I was, you know, involved, you know, from the very beginning in doing obviously multiple things, you know, small team, doing you know technology, you know, hiring the team, uh, you know, scaling, you know, sales and marketing, you know, so going to you know sell to clients, uh, you know, so doing almost everything from that perspective as, you know, as, as it's the, the, the right thing to do at that scale and from that perspective. And then at the end, you know, um, we grew the business, you know, quite a bit. I think at, uh, at, at the top, it was around 70, 80 people, the business. And at the end, you know, we, we sold the business to, to Hewlett Packard, you know, from that perspective, which I, which I didn't join, you know, uh, at the end. So and I, then I moved to, to my next, you know, uh, startup, which is, which is Fog. But, but uh, maybe, maybe before we talk a little bit about Fog, maybe we can, dive a little deeper into what your experience was like mm. during your time at NetFocus. With 78 people as the sort of the top line number when you exited, that's a that's a massive story of scaling mm. up. You know, many, many startups will get lucky if they get to that size of mm. staff. And you said you were the number two guy, really. So walk us through some of the scaling challenges and some of the... Yeah, so for, for me, this this is a kind of a, a baptism by fire type of a story from the perspective because you know, by, by the CEO of the company from the perspective and 
Again, I created that, you know, digital security unit within the, the company and think about managing teams. So I didn't have, you know, a lot of experience doing that from the perspective. So, so for me, it was a massive, you know, learning exercise. And I was very lucky that basically, you know, my, my boss trusted me to actually do something that I was, you know, totally unprepared, you know, to do from the perspective. So uh, I needed to learn, you know, as, as we, you know, as I was going from the perspective, what does it mean to, to actually, you know, uh, build teams? What does it mean to do sales? What does it mean to, to, you know, retain, you know, people and to motivate people? Uh, what does it mean, you know, architecting, you know, big, big software pieces? Uh, you know, so all these bits, you know, uh, basically we need, I needed to, to learn as, as I, you know, as I was basically, you know, doing things from that perspective. And I think this, this is some, something that is a constant in my, in my life, which is, you know, I've always been taking on things that were bigger, you know, than I was, you know, prepared, you know, to do from that perspective, which I think, you know, I was, you know, very lucky in the sense that, you know, I was always pushed, you know, to do more from the perspective. And that was a massive, you know, learning, mm. learning experience from so the perspective. So, so, that, so I would, I would maybe say that that is a, an attribute that is necessary. Is yeah. like not necessarily hoping to have the skills, just being willing to jump into the deep end of the pool. Yes. But what other elements would you say were critical in, in, in developing quickly to yes. get you there? And what were the, the mistakes that you made that you think you look back on now and regret. So, so th I think one of the one of the mistakes that we did, you know, was not, you know, to we didn't scale sales, you know, quick enough, you know, from a relatively big opportunity from the perspective, and uh, you know, we didn't scale, you know, big enough. I, th I think, you know, and this is which is also I think a big mistake of of uh, Spanish organizations in many cases. So we take time to actually think, you know, about international in the country, but I think in general we, you know, first think about, you know, Spain and and for example. You know, then you had other organizations that were, you know, kind of um, uh, focusing much more internationally in the same space that we were doing, like, you know, DocuSign or EcoSign, and they have, you know, become, you know, global standards, you know, for digital signatures and document workflows from that perspective. And I think, I think in hindsight, one of the things that we did is we didn't look uh, very broadly. And I think this is one, this was one of the biggest, you know, mistakes from that perspective. That, that's also from a diversity perspective. Uh, that's also, you know, reflected. The, so the composition of the team was mostly, you know, Spanish people, Spanish speaking, which is fine, you know, but normally doesn't help a lot in terms of, you know, thinking internationally from that perspective. I thought also that our level of, Engli of English at that moment, now it's not great, you know, but at that point it was, you know, relatively poor, which is also, you know, limiting, you know, from that perspective. Uh, so these, these were a, a few of the, you know, key mistakes. Uh, I also made a, you know, bunch of other mistakes that are, you know, basically, um, um, you know, due to my experience from that perspective. So due to my experience, which, you know, were, you know, related to a lot of, you know, how to manage, you know, people, how to manage teams from that perspective. And I think I didn't, you know, I did a pretty, you know, pretty bad job, you know, managing, you know, teams from that perspective. And in some cases being, you know, um, a micromanager from that perspective, not giving teams enough, you know, freedom from that perspective to pursue, uh, to basically have, you know, uh, contribute in the way they, they see fit, you know, to the business from that perspective. So I was quite, you know, controlling, quite a micromanager from that perspective. And I think, I think that's a, that, that was a big mistake. And this is a pattern I've seen in many cases when you have people moving from being engineers where you control everything to actually, you know, start running, running teams and stuff like this is basically you think, Hey, you know, I can control everything. And, you know, you are not paying attention to the specific nature of, you know, people dynamics and how, how to manage teams effectively. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that, that, that I think is always a struggle, you know, from the perspective that, that I see many, you know, engineers, you know, doing, you know, when starting to manage teams. So, yeah. So. One of the things that the Skyscanner experience provided you with is access to a far more international team. Yes. What are the things that you have learned culturally 
make a difference in overcoming some of these managerial challenges? Are there, do the teams all kind of respond to the same thing or are there cultural motivators and cultural tools that you now are more aware of? Yeah, so I think there are a few things there. So it's a relatively, you know, it's a multi-layered answer from that perspective. So, so I, think, I think one of the things that are important there is, you know, how you manage, you know, distribute it, you know, development teams from that perspective, because we had, you know, in Skyscanner, we had, you know, multiple offices from that perspective and, and how you manage, you know, multiple offices is quite tricky from a product development perspective. So it's important when you develop, you know, offices, you know, worldwide from a product development perspective that the offices have a, you know, big remit that they manage and that they are independent, you know, running this remit from the perspective. So if you have two guys in an office in a different country, you know, and they need to call, you know, to the headquarters every time they need to make a decision and you don't have it. So the best setup that we have seen is you have a team, you know, and they have a big mission, you know, for example, our Budapest team for building apps, you know, in Budapest. And we were basically aligning with the guys in you know at the goals you know what do we need to build but then they have you know, how we do things and how we basically build the product and what what product exactly we build and all these bits so give a lot of independence to operate in distributed development organizations this is you know kind of a, a very very important thing that we you know figured out so that's one thing the other thing is the way i prefer you know to, in terms of how to how to manage you know people is you know give people a lot of you know freedom agree on the strategy and the main goals main goals to pursue from the perspective mm-hmm. give help people and empower them with a with the framework that they need to actually do a good job so basically empower people specifically for example in product management what does it mean being a good product manager and what techniques you need to apply and you know agree on you know what goals we need to pursue you know uh, for the next you know quarter for example and then you know leave the guys a lot of independence in terms of how to pursue these goals and what decisions need to be made from a product perspective and, and just give the guys uh, the freedom to actually do all these things so it's, it's about empowering about yeah. giving context and then you know basically removing ob- obstacles you know from them and then yeah. basically getting out of the way I think that is crucial and that's, you know, kind of opposed to my previous previous style of, you know, micromanaging, you know, and being present in all, all the decisions, yeah. which is not working. Then another element, you know, um, is important is when, when, when taking into, into account inter, interpers, interpersonal interactions is, as you said, you know, it's very, very important to take into account the cultural differences, you know, and, and how people... How, how you communicate with people is different in, you know, in Sofia or in China or in, or in Budapest or in, you know, Barcelona or in the UK, you know, from the perspective. And these are, these were all places where we had offices from the perspective. And, you know, in fact, my reports were, you know, many, many different nationalities and usually clear differences, you know, from the perspective in terms of, you know, what motivates, you know, people and, you know, culturally how they prefer to, to interact with each other. And, and this is something that you need to adapt, you know, to from the perspective in terms of what, what uh, styles of communication people are, you know, kind of reacting, you know, better to from the perspective. This is something you need to, to adapt. You know. And how did you learn that? I mean, for, for a lot of new founders, they have the choice of learning by fire, which is going to cost them time and money, or they maybe can approach a coach or alternatives, you know, speak with people like you. But are there any other ideas or any other ways that people can learn these, these nuances more, more effectively? I think I think it's difficult, you know, in my so I don't know if you can learn that in theory because this is kind of very what I've mentioned is pretty theoretical and you know it's very nuanced, you know, how you do these things in practice. So yeah. in my in my experience I learned that, you know, as part of, you know, my journey within Skyscanner. So so when I started in Skyscanner essentially, you know, I, I knew, you know, way less, you know, that when when I finished, you know, uh when I ended up, you know, uh so I really 
learned you know a lot of these things from people more experienced than me and you know people that were you know doing all, all these things you know before me so yeah well one of the things and i know we're jumping around a little bit here but one of the things obviously having been in two startups that have gotten acquired is that you also have a unique perspective on the acquisition process mm. and it'd be great to get your views on what would an acquisition process looked like for NetFocus, which got acquired and you didn't ultimately join the HP team versus in your next company, which we'll talk about, that you end up staying in the company that acquired you for a long period of time. Yes. What advice you would have for founders going through an acquisition process and anybody approaching them for a potential acquisition? So, yeah, so all from the perspective, because there I was the, the CEO of the company uh, and then we can go backwards, you know, from the perspective. So what the acquisition process is, you know, how it goes. So, so the the first thing that happened basically is you know we I discussed you know with uh, with Gareth Williams uh, who is the the CEO and the founder of the company, and and you know we like each other and you know Skyscanner obviously was interested into uh, getting into hotels you know basically in fact what we were doing is hotel search, and Skyscanner you know was massive and still massive in in flights from perspective and wanted to go into hotels and you know didn't want to actually spend you know five years building, you know, a hotel's meta search engine from the perspective. So, so okay, uh, Gareth thought, hey, that would be a great combination from the perspective to, to actually get these guys on board. You know, they have the knowledge, they have the team, they have the product from the perspective, and we can integrate all that from day one, you know, in the in the business, and then, you know, use that, that team and that technology as the basis for, for building the future of Skyscanner from a hotel's perspective. That's from a, from a Skyscanner perspective, from our perspective, what we cared about was impact, you know, so making an, an impact. We are builders, so what we care is about, you know, our products being used by a lot of people, you know, and, you know, also, if possible, globally from the perspective. And Skyscanner was accelerating, you know, by several orders of magnitude that, because Skyscanner, you know, at the moment was, you know, huge from the perspective, very, very international business, lots of users, you know, um, around the world from the perspective. So we thought, hey, we, were, we are going to basically accelerate our, our you know, uh, speed to impact in a, in a big way from the perspective. So... And then, you know, the more we were speaking with the executive team and with, uh, and with Gareth, the more we liked, you know, the Skyscanner, you know, project and, and the team. So, so we thought, hey, that would be great to, to join forces, you know, from that perspective. After that, you know, what happened is, so we, we presented, uh, you know, to, to all the executive team in, in Edinburgh, in the headquarters, uh, you know, in a variety of topics. So, you know, from legal topics to financial topics and, the, you know, marketing and the, and the traction of the business and, uh, things like, you know, the product strategy and, you know, so we basically cover a variety of aspects, you know, and, uh, you know, at the end of the session, so we basically, um, you know, uh, left the executive team to this debate a bit and, you know, then they, they told us that they would, you know, actually look to, to acquire us from the perspective and, and that, you know, they wanted to actually, you know, start the acquisition process from the perspective. And then, you know, from a, the acquisition process, you know, what happened there was um, uh, after that, you know, the, the executive team, you know, visited Barcelona and they basically, you know, gave us a, a, their offer, you know, what their initial offer was from the perspective and, and, and a heads of terms, so a draft document, you know, kind of a term sheet from the perspective with the, you know, overall terms of the, of the acquisition from the perspective. Uh, then, you know, we were basically negotiating that a bit and, and at the end, you know, we decided to, to go ahead, you know, uh, with, uh, with the, with the deal from the perspective. And then what happens is you start, you know, due diligence. So that there, there are three streams, you know, normally of due diligence. So you have, you know, financial due diligence, you have legal due diligence and you have technical due diligence. So obviously, you know, the company was relatively small, you know, at that point. So the, the legal and financial due diligence are not huge from the perspective. So the most important one is the, the technical, you know, due diligence. Diligence and uh, basically this is where we spend you know the most the most time you know, from that perspective. 
So we, we passed, you know, so we were working around two months, you know, from the perspective in terms of timeline, you know, we started speaking around May, you know, we got the, the, the term sheet around, you know, June, and then we spent, you know, around two months and a half, you know, doing, you know, the due diligence. And then at the end, you know, uh, basically, you know, we, we passed the, the, the three due diligence and, uh, and then what we basically got the, was the completion phase, which we basically going to negotiate the actual, the final, you know, um, share purchase agreement and the guarantees agreement, which are the typical agreements that you need to sign in this type of deals from the perspective. And then we basically completed and, and then we started focusing on the integration of the company, you know, and while we were doing the due diligence, this is something that we also were preparing in PAL, just how we are going, we started to do the planning of how we're going to do the integration um, of the hotels business within the larger uh, Skyscanner business from the perspective. So I know you're going to share the, the previous um, company's acquisition as well, but on this one in specific, uh, it sounds like it was very much a, a very traditional process. Everything mm -hmm. you described sounds very structured and sequential, yes. but was there um, any moment where shit hit the fan or there was yes. a specific point that was debated back and forth that now you look back on and, and perhaps it wasn't a big deal. So for example, hitting a milestone or a specific product development thing, or was it, what was, if, if anything, if you can share, I don't know, maybe yeah. you can't, but that, that'd be an interesting thing to, to hear. Yeah. So I mean, as, as you were saying, Carlos, you know, it's like, sounds very linear and very easy, you know, but obviously, yeah. you know, one of the things from a psychological perspective that happens in, in this, in this type of processes, as you know, is that, you know, it can basically go, you know, uh, it can basically end up in you know any moment and it can fail in any moment from the perspective and you have this sensation of you know things are going well but then something happens and things are not going so well so you have this roller coaster from the perspective from an emotional uh and probably one of, was one of the toughest you know moments from an emotional perspective for for me and for the team so even if the process was you know sequential and logical you know the emotions were not you know as sequential and as logical from the perspective so then in terms of, the, from a milestones perspective, you mentioned the milestones, and I think we, we spent a ton of time actually um, uh, looking at the milestones and making sure that, you know, they were realistic and and the executive team at Skyscanner were really great at, you know, actually, you know, uh, working with us, the milestones and, you know, being realistic because they, they were basically very focused on, on us succeeding, you know, with the milestones and this is the most important thing. Because, if you integrate a company and you start with a big failure because you have, you know, had a very, very, you know, unrealistic milestones and stuff like this, this is not a great way to actually. So you want the milestones to deliver value, you know, but something that is realistic, you know, and that is relatively short term that you can do in a few months or maybe one year, but not, you know, milestones over multiple years because you don't know what's going to happen and what's going to be important in yeah. year two, year three from that aspect. So milestones. We achieved 100% of the milestone, so that was, you know, um, it, it, the milestones made sense, and you know, this is, this is what needed to be done from the perspective. In terms of things that, you know, hiccups that happened, you know, you know, in the middle of the process, so things like uh, relatively minor things, nothing super major. So we had some intellectual property issues that we needed to solve in terms of some, you know, IP assignments that needed to be done, you know, from contractors and. That were super important, you know, for the team to get completed, and that we needed to, you know, we needed to chase, you know, people that were. That was in August, so in August uh, is famous in Spain. No one is actually in Spain, so we hit, we had to chase investors, kind of on holidays all over the world, you know, to actually get some paper signed and you know some contractors um, to get uh, you know IP assignments done and all this bit. So it was a bit you know fun from the perspective chasing people all over the world, you know. Uh, but I think we closed that, you know, successfully also, but, you know, it was a bit stressful in the sense of, okay, this is a deal breaker if we don't get that done, you know, 
and you know it was it is a bit a bit stressful and then you know uh, another thing that was fun was uh, well fun you know as of today it wasn't so fun uh, at the moment is when looking i think the the very last day you know um that you know before signing the the on, on the last step you know the process you know we're looking at you know tax implications from the perspective and you know how it is always tax is tough you know from the perspective and and you know there were there were some moments where basically we were seeing that you know the 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 deal you know maybe you know was at risk you know due to some tax issues and at the end we managed to solve that you know well from the perspective and in a satisfactory way for all the people but yeah. there were some moments where basically we had this yeah. this you know nervousness around okay that that's not great especially you know in the eleventh hour type of yeah. thing so. Well, I mean, it's very, that's a very good summary. It's consistent with what I've heard tends to be things that need to be dealt with very early on. So for founders that are going through this process, I have heard, yes, it's very important to get your intellectual property in order. That tends to be a sticking point. Taxation tends to be another sticking point. Milestones tend to be another sticking point. So it's, it's great that it seems to reflect what, what everybody else is also sort of experiencing. Now, that was their second one. So mm. walk us through the first one. I mean, I can only assume that whenever you do things for the first time, they're inherently yeah, worse. So, so yeah. like, what was that like? It, was, it wasn't worse from the point of view that, you know, at the end, you know, there I was the deputy CEO, but the CEO was running, you know, most of the acquisition work from that perspective. So I was a bit more in a, you know, supporting role there than a really active role. So the structure wasn't very different from what I've, you know, mentioned from that. So the, the really, you know, stressful one for me was the, the second one, because this was the, the one where I was the founder yeah. and CEO of the company. So in terms of the structure, it wasn't very, very different, you know, okay. to the, to the first one. So, but now let's jump to your time at Skyscanner yeah. uh, as a chief product officer. And before we kind of walk through the journey of, you know, when you merged and how the teams became in and then your move, let's, let's skip a little bit of that and, and jump straight into what is a CPO? What, yeah. what is that role? What's that role entail? Uh, when should a company start thinking about having a CPO? Yeah. So it's a th- I think it's important, you know, for me when, when looking at, let's start first, you know, before we look at the specific role of CPO. Let's look at product management, you know, from that perspective, because the CPO is normally the leader of the, you know, product management, you know, function from that perspective. But I think, I think it's a bit unclear, you know, in many cases, when you ask, you know, 25, you know, different uh, CPOs about what product management is, they will tell you different things. So I will tell you the, you know, 26, you know, version from that perspective. And, and also, I think, I think what it's also helpful is to actually look at, you know, um, the actual responsibilities when compared with other functions, because obviously, you know, you have, you have there um, kind of three key, you know, actors that are basically working together to build products, which are the product management guys, the design guys, and the engineering guys. And for me, these are kind of the the three-legged stool, you know, uh, when building products. You know, and these guys, you know, have a lot of collaboration, you know, among among themselves to actually build products. And there is a you know deep partnership from that perspective. So one thing, if we look at responsibilities of the different functions from that perspective. So one that I like to, you know, use to actually illustrate the difference between product management and engineering is, in my opinion, um, engineering is responsible, you know, for two things. One is a software development throughput. So it's basically develops, developing software very, very efficiently, very, very quickly. And the second thing is software quality. So these are the two main things that are the key responsibilities of, of uh, engineering, you know, from that aspect. If we look at Product management, the responsibilities there are two, in my opinion. One is impact, which is, you know, you can have a lot of throughput in terms of software going out of the door, but you may not have any impact in terms of you're not moving the KPIs, you're building the wrong things, 
and you know therefore all this software that you are building maybe the engineering you know guys are doing a great you know job from the perspective but you are wasting everything from the perspective so the main business of, of a product manager is impact is ensuring that we build the right things you know and there is also this analogy of building the right things for product managers versus building the things right you know from an engineering perspective and I think it's a good analogy and the second thing you know beyond impact is is uh, is product quality. So it's making sure that the you know quality of the final output is really, really good from a user perspective. So that the acceptance criteria that you set out, you know, what is basically fulfilled and the overall quality of the product, you know, in terms of the user experiences is really good from that perspective. So these are the main differences from that perspective. And then then you know what the what the CPO does, you know, I think it varies a lot in the different organizations. You know, one of the things is CPOs in some organizations, given the ratio that you have between engineers and product managers, so in Skyscanner we tended to use a 1 to 10, 1 to 12 ratio. So for, uh, for every you know, 10, 12 engineers, we had one product manager. So the thing is, when you scale an engineering team, you normally have you know, pretty big you know, engineering teams quite early in the process. And, and then, you know, uh, but you don't have very big, you know, product management teams because of the one to 10 ratio from that perspective. So the team need, of engineering needs to be very big, you know, before you start getting a significant amount of, of product managers. So in this case, kind of, for example, we had, you know, around 40 product managers at the end with around 40, 100, uh, 400 engineers from that perspective. So that's the, the ratio that we were applying. So the difference is when you go to smaller companies that maybe, you know, just have one or two people, you know, from a product management perspective, the CPO tends to be more of a, let's say, principal product manager type of thing, which is an individual contributor that is very involved into the day to day of the product, is very involved in specing actual products, in, in actual running A-B tests, in speaking with customers, in, in uh, understanding very well the problem space and solution space, in, in actually doing, you know, an individual contributor job, you know, from that perspective, is the most senior, you know, product manager in the company, let's say. Whereas if you go to, uh, to a company like Skyscanner, where basically you have, uh, you know, a four, 40 product managers, essentially the, the job is different. So the job is around, you know, running the product management organization and less about, you know, being an individual contributor and actually running experiments or writing specs about, you know, what the product needs to do or reviewing, you know, analytics and stuff like this. So it's about how do you empower your product managers to actually be very successful. Mm. And that is by, you know, giving them context about, you know, what goals are we trying to achieve and what's the strategy for the company. And that's, you know, about giving them, you know, a context about how, you know, what are the set of practices that they need to apply on their day to day to actually, you know, do a good job and make the proper, you know, make make decisions, and then obviously removing as much friction as possible from the from the teams. So when you have, you know, people actually um, coming with issues, then solving that, and also there is the people management aspects. So how do you hire? You know, what what we call the functional aspects of the of this CPO role, which are how you hire people, how do you do performance management, how do you train people, how do you exit people when they are not performing performing how do you do all these bits that are you know related to people operations so that's that's the cpo life let's say when 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 you are you know at bigger scale from the perspective and i think one of the big differences is you know cpo in small companies is more of a senior product manager or principal product manager whereas a when you go to big organizations like skyscanner mm. what you have more is is more of a functional manager so someone that is you know setting the context and you know giving guidance to the teams and you know doing all the people management and setting the overall strategy and, and direction for the product so. mm. if you were starting a new company and you were the ceo and the founder and you had maybe one or two technical talent 
Would you try to groom them to become that CPO once the team got big enough to the 10, as you said? Or is that a kind of role that you almost need to uh, have experience in and train for and then you need to hire in externally? So I, th I think, I think you know, what they've done, I think, again, so there it depends on what type of CPO. So um, in my opinion, you know, one of the things that is very, very difficult to hire for, in, especially in Europe, is very good experienced product managers. Actually, the, the discipline is not very well developed, you know, in Europe from that perspective. So we have had a lot of success, not so much in Skyscanner hiring, you know, external product managers, which we have done. So mm -hmm. we have done, you know, uh, we have hired a ton of, you know, product managers externally. But also we have done a good job of actually training people that were not, you know, product managers, but that had the traits and the, and the product sensibilities to, to actually become, you know, product managers. And we have done all the training, you know, from the perspective to actually get them to, you know, to become great product managers. So I fully believe in, in terms of the path of actually getting non-product managers to, you know, from technical disciplines or from, uh, or from design disciplines, to actually become, you know, great product managers uh, and hiring people without experience to actually help them, you know, grow from the perspective. I think this is actually the best path in Europe because if you need to build a, you know, 40 people product management organization just by hiring, you know, uh, mm -hmm. people externally, it's going to be very, very tough. Mm -hmm. And if you speak with anyone in other companies that are hiring, you know, uh, product managers, the, the shortage of product managers is with with experience and at the right level of quality is very, very low from that aspect. So that, that's from an individual contributor perspective. Uh, when you hire, you know, people to actually do product management role from an individual contributor perspective. When you think about management from the perspective about managers of the product management organization, there, I tend to, you know, there to err more on the side of experience from the perspective because many of the management things, you know, you need to do them before mm. from the perspective. And you can do that, you know, promoting people from the inside. So people that, you know, studied as individual contributor product managers, but they, you know, started then, you know, managing teams and they learned from the inside how to run teams and, and that's always always working very well. But also you need to, to look, especially for, for very senior roles, in some cases you need to look for external talent for you know people that are you know are very experienced from that perspective. And we have had a variety of those also from you know very, very successful you know organizations that you know were running at scale. Because it's that, that's something that requires experience, but you can gain that both internally by, yeah. by doing that or you know by by coming from another company that is operating at scale. Uh, and you need to combine, you know, both in that perspective. But from an individual contributor perspective, my preferred path is to actually, uh, you know, have people that uh, are brilliant, brilliant guys, have product sensibilities and have the right traits uh, to actually be great product managers and actually train them to actually, you know, become great product managers. So on, on that note of training, yeah. let's pretend for a second we were going to write a book yeah. on training. This yes. is a, the, the new manual and this manual, the first three chapters, what would be the titles of those first three chapters of the book of yes. training product managers. Yeah, so so one of the things is our our approach. So our approach of, of training product managers is, is essentially practical, you know, so it's not that you go and, and the thing is it's not the same as engineering where basically you have a pretty big hurdle in terms of you know learning all the you know uh, algorithms and you know math aspects of you know data science and you know, uh, you, you have a, lo a lot of things to learn before you start, you know, being, you know, proficient from that perspective. So here is, is less of a normative, you know, discipline from that perspective, and it's more of an ex experiential, you know, a, a discipline from that perspective. So, so we tend to go in a similar way to what the guys at Google did. I don't know if you have heard about the, you know, associate product manager program, mm -hmm. 
which is the, the, the program that Marisa Mayer created. And basically what they were doing is basically having guys, you know, coming out from the university and then, you know, basically getting them into product teams as soon as possible to start shipping things. And you start from, you know, shipping small things, you know, maybe small features and stuff like this and, you know, under supervision of, an, of another product manager and understanding how a product manager is running, you know, the squad, you know, the team operations. That's one of the things that, you know, you need to, to learn, you know, one of the chapters in the, that book that you were mentioning. Yeah. It's how to run the team operations. So when you are in a product team, you have designers, you have engineers. Uh, so what's the cadence mm -hmm. of the operation? So what, what do I need to do every day to actually run a team? Mm -hmm. So if, if we are running Scrum, for example, a Scrum team, and, and we're running sprints, how do, how do you organize sprints? Mm -hmm. How do you prioritize? Uh, you know, how do you solve conflicts within the team? And uh, how do you run an experiment from the perspective? So you need to actually learn, you know, all these, all these bits from the perspective. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the, 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 the running, you know, the, the squad operations, the team operations is, is one of the critical things. And we do that by, you know, getting, you know, some of the, of the junior guys within the teams and they, they basically shadow one of the most experienced product managers and they basically do things under, under supervision from the perspective. So. So, you know, get into the rhythm of the business from the perspective on how the, you know, the, the, um, how the team operates is key, you know, because that's something that you just cannot learn in theory. Yeah. And you, you basically learn that by, by seeing that, you know, from the perspective. Yeah. Then you have a, a lot of, you know, the second thing is beyond the, the, the rhythm of the business or the cadence of how you run teams is the actual product management discipline. So, so uh, there are very, very subtle details. For example, one topic that is quite hard is, how do you design and run successful experiments? You know what I mean? So, so this is a topic, for example, that is, you know, part of what we call the, the discipline training, mm -hmm. which is, you know, uh, how do you decide what to focus on? You have infinite, you know, uh, experiments that you could be running. So how do you decide what to focus on? So when you are thinking about your backlog, you, you normally need to, you know, have different buckets that you need to allocate the time, you know, to, to achieving goals, you know, the OKRs, for example, which we use in, you know, Skyscanner to actually set goals. Sometimes needs to be dedicated to helping other teams. Sometimes needs to be dedicated to emerging emerging issues that are coming from uh, from a technical perspective or so problems that you have in production. So how do you basically you know distribute time you know from that perspective, and what packets you have you know when planning your your backlog from that perspective? How do you do product discovery you know for example? So in the vast majority of the time, 80% of the software that, you know, a company develops is basically a waste because it doesn't make any impact in the business from the perspective. And 80% of the experiments that you're thinking that are going to make an impact in, in the numbers, they are not making any, any impact. So how do you, how do you, you have to train guys to actually do product discovery and to try to be building as, as little as possible before they validate, you know, and get some, some quantitative validation or some qualitative validation. And then, you know, building the next, you know, increment from the perspective. So how to be efficient, you know, uh, building software. So, so this is what we call the discipline, you know, so basically for, for product managers learning all the techniques associated to the job. So how to run experiments, how to do product discovery, how to allocate time from a backlog perspective, how to prioritize the backlog. So all these bits, you know, from the perspective. So that's another chapter of the book, which has many sub chapters, you know, from the perspective. This is something that, you know, we used to do in, you know, in Skyscanner is we were basically developing that practice in a collaborative way. So with the, with the teams, you know, we had the sessions for all the product managers where basically we were focusing in one of these topics, how to do experiments right, how to, what are the key types of, you know, analysis of analytics that you want to master. Uh, and basically we're having product managers writing, you know, documents about how to do it and how do they do it. Mostly senior, you know, product managers, the guys, the guys that were more experienced. 
And then, you know, we had the team to actually do Q&A and comment and basically, you know, set practice, you know, among all the team, basically trade that initial document and set that as the, the general practice for the, for the team from that perspective. So, so we were using this cross training, you know, element from that perspective also. So, you know, these are two, you know, chapters that you, that you will use in the book. So one is how do you run team operations from that perspective? And another one is, you know, uh, learning the product management practice. You know, I mentioned a few examples in terms of, yeah. experimentation and, and the other bits. I feel like we need to work on this book, Carlos. Yeah. I think yeah. A Carlos and Carlos book. That sounds great. Exactly. Um, well, we. I, th I feel like there's such a wealth of knowledge here that we could continue uh, and maybe we, we continue this podcast and then a part two. So maybe we wrap things up now and then we continue it uh, exploring this, this topic of Chief Product Officer uh, a little bit more in depth. Yeah. However, we always like to end with a couple of fun questions. Great. And that's when I get nervous now. That's when you get nervous, <laughs> yes. I, I actually didn't even give you which, which fun questions I'm going to ask you about. So let's, let's pick some random ones here. Um, what's something you used to strongly believe that now you think you were fundamentally misguided about? That's, that's a very good question. So I think something I've I've changed that and and I think it, it maybe it's not as binary as you as you mentioned in terms of you know I was you know extremely on one side and you know and I'm extremely extremely on the other side but I think something that I basically underestimated you know the the weight and the importance of that in an organization is the the importance of doing communications well in especially at your scale from the perspective so you think communications is something you know in my engineering you know simple engineer mind you know from the perspective everything works you know kind of uh, in a in a very perfect way and everything is you know as predicted from the perspective now you see that the reality is not like this you know in the sense that uh, you communicate things and and things don't stick and you need to the amount of repetition that you need to you know um, and uh, to do in terms of you know communications and repeating the communication and and the amount of simplicity that you need to basically get to in terms of you know your communications to actually get things understood that's something i i, th I think it surprised me in terms of i thought it was going to be easier and it is extremely hard, especially when you work uh, as, it, as it was our case with, you know, kind of 800 people across 10 offices in different countries from that perspective. It, it becomes really, really tough to get all the people in the same page. And I think, you know, that caught me, you know, um, I, I thought that was important, obviously. But now, you know, I think the importance of that is crucial and the difficulty of that is crucial. And this is something that definitely my waiting on that has basically increased a lot in, in, in terms of the difficulty and the importance of doing that well. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Good question. That's a tough one. Hmm. I think I think you know I've learned a lot from Gareth, uh, from the founder and CEO of Skyscan. I think he's a you know one of the most brilliant entrepreneurs and, and businessmen businessmen I've ever met. I think he's brilliant. Uh, and one of the things that I think it was absolutely great from him is you know when assessing businesses from the perspective they. When we're looking at, you know, the, the, the power and the validity and the viability of some businesses, he used a very, very simple framework to basically categorize, you know, businesses from that perspective. Then obviously you need to actually look at many other things, but he was, he was looking at, you know, two dimensions. One is the frequency dimension of the business. So how frequent is the use case from that perspective? And the other is the universality, you know, uh, dimension, which is, you know, how many people are basically target for this service. And, and, you know, the point is the most frequent and universal, you know, if you categorize Facebook or WhatsApp or Google are extremely, you know, high frequency, you know, uh, use cases with, you know, extreme universality characteristics, you know. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I think, you know, the simplicity of, so obviously this is something that is, you know, relatively direct and, and obvious, but the simplicity of that, you know, way of categorizing businesses really, you know, amazed me from the perspective. I think it's a really, really valid one. Yeah, it reminds me of the sort of analogy of flies versus elephants, you know, yes. the, the small, yes. big and the repeatability of it. Carlos, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carlos. It was it was an amazing uh, insight into uh, both the, the process of scaling companies, but also uh, the practice of a CPO, which I think is still a black art. Yes. Um, so hopefully we can continue that conversation. Happy to continue, you know, developing that in the next uh, in the next podcast. Excellent, guys. Until next time. Bye.